Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Last time, we discussed the Visigoths, looking at the differences between their political structure and that of the Frankish kingdoms. That will come in handy for this episode, as we are going to cover Guntram's failed invasion of Visigothic Septimania. Then we'll discuss Guntram and Gregory's criticisms of the Frankish military in episode 55, A Feeble Army. Before we get into all that though, a quick tangent to discuss Fredegund. Since her rival Brunhild got so much attention last episode, it is only fair that we discuss what the Neustrian Queen has been up to. Gregory details one of her plots to have King Childebert assassinated. Before we get into the actual plot though, let's remind ourselves that Gregory not only hates Fredegund, but also has no way of knowing whether everything he writes is 100% true. He uses artistic license to fill in the gaps that he can't know, as so many ancient authors did. But the chapter is still interesting for its depiction of the growing trend of political assassination, and the perception of these politically active dowager queens. So let's get into it. It starts with King Luvigild, fresh off the death of his rebellious son Hermenegild, apparently sending a letter to Fredegund. In it, he asks her to arrange the death of Childbert and Brunhild, then to make peace with Guntram, offering her whatever money she needed to support the plot. He then asks her to reward Bishop Emilius of Tarbay and a Lady Luba, clearly identifying them as Visigothic supporters. This is somewhat believable, considering the bishop's proximity to Visigothic lands in Tarbay, which is in the far south of Gaul. Gregory claims that despite the plot being discovered, and both Guntram and Childebert being made aware of it, Fredegund goes ahead with her plans. Even if untrue, we know that Fredegund was in a pretty unassailable position at this time. Neustria might have been sidelined thanks to the Austrasian-Burgundian alliance, but Guntram had also proved both unable to remove her completely from power, and unwilling to take more drastic action against her. So for the moment, she could move with impunity. According to Gregory, she had two iron daggers made. They had special grooves in them to contain poison that should guarantee death even if the wound made by the knife was not fatal. She placed these two daggers into the hands of two clerics. She then gave them specific instructions to take the role of mendicants, a kind of religious person bound by a vow of poverty. They were to use this disguise to get an audience with Childebert, throw themselves at his feet to beg for alms, then, when close enough, stab him with the daggers. If he was too well protected, however, they were to kill Brunhild instead. In return, they would be richly rewarded, or if they died in the attempt, which seems likely, their families would be richly rewarded. There are a couple of interesting things to note about this. First, Gregory makes it clear that these two men were actually men of the cloth, not just Fredegund's agents in disguise. A rather stark admission, 
and a reminder that the corruption and violence that Gregory abhorred in his church was nevertheless alive and well. Second, he records that the two churchmen were trembling in fear at the prospect of their suicidal mission, so Fredegund drugged them with a potion which immediately restored their courage and gave them another vial to use on the day of their mission. We've talked before about the powerful image of the local wise woman, and how the church was trying to co-opt this image for their female saints, while stamping out those who were independent of the church's authority. Here Gregory invokes this image for Fredegund, giving strange elixirs to her assassins to carry out her dastardly schemes. A clear reversion of the image of a kind, caring, medically competent wise woman. Unfortunately for Fredegund, her assassins soon fail. They make their way to Soissons, but are captured by Duke Rouching in the city. Rouching is actually an enemy of Brunhild, as we'll see in a later episode, but his response shows that while many of the nobles were opposed to the Queen's party, they were still loyal to the crown. He has the two men interrogated, also capturing a spy sent by Fredegund to see if her plan had worked out. The three men were then turned over to Childebert's custody, where they confessed to the king. They were tortured, this time in punishment, then had their hands, ears, and noses cut off before finally being executed. This plot, though unsuccessful, demonstrates the increasing commonality of political assassination in the kingdoms. While usually attributed to the Dowager Queens Brunhild and Fredegund, there are a lot of mysterious deaths in the realm during this period that we might look twice at given the increased use of these methods. Anyway, let's get on to the main topic of this episode. Gothic Septimania was a narrow strip of coastal territory along the Mediterranean in the south of Gaul. It was not large, but it did hold significant cities like Narbonne. It was also geopolitically significant, as the last part of the Visigothic kingdom in Gaul, which had once dominated the region. It was also the last part of Gaul not under Frankish domination. It had escaped Clovis's invasion, and weathered several other attempts at conquest, including from Theudebert, which we covered way back in episode 8. The rise of Guntram as the undisputed senior king was a source of great concern for the Visigoths. Their enemies in Spain were bad enough, they weren't really major threats to the Gothic kingdom. The Franks, on the other hand, haunted the Gothic nobility as the only kingdom powerful enough to really threaten them in the region. When the kings were feuding and at each other's throats, well, that was fine. But once one of the Frankish kings got dominance over the others, then flashbacks to Clovis at Vuil had the Visigoths sweating in their beds at night. The rise of Guntram was actually one of the likely reasons for the choice of Luva upon the death of Athanagild. He was actually crowned in Narbonne, and the Visigoths' focus seems to have been trained on Guntram as a potential threat to their last Gallic holding. The lands were not only rich and politically important, 
they were also strategically important, as they guarded the best invasion route into Spain. If the Visigothic strongholds fell, the Gothic nobles had legitimate fears of Frankish troops pouring into Spain and looting their rich estates. And this fear was not unfounded. We happen to know that Guntram only really summoned the spirit of his martial ancestors when threatened himself, but the Visigoths did not. To them, the Franks were still bogeymen, one of the only groups to have ever truly defeated them on the field of battle. And Guntram had taken a clear interest in the neglected southern regions of Gaul. Not only after Gundavold's rebellion, his earlier interventions in Marseille also show a determination to bring these rich but often forgotten about regions to heel. Largely rebuffed in Neustria, allied to Austrasia, and having settled Gundervold's rebels, Guntram was finally free to complete the conquest of Gaul by taking Septimania. He called together an army in his Burgundian provinces, and tasked them with first taking Septimania, obviously with an eye on continuing on to Spain if things went well. The Burgundians set out across Gaul. As they marched through central Gaul, more men flocked to the banners, ready some good old-fashioned killing and looting. And killing and looting they would do. As the host marched through the southern provinces, they began to scour the land, looting everything they could get their hands on. As Gregory rightfully points out, this was very much Frankish territory, meaning that, once again, a Frankish army was looting their own lands. He also notes the complete lack of discipline, with churches stripped clean, clergy massacred, and holy altars defiled with blood. A great start for a heroic conquering army. Eventually, this lumbering beast reached Septimania. Falling first upon the town of Nîmes, they broke the defences and perpetrated a savage sack. Next up was Carcassonne, which, no doubt terrified by this army that seemed determined to raise everything before them, surrendered and opened its gates. The army entered the city, but soon a quarrel arose with its inhabitants, because of course it did. So, they left the town. At this point, history turns, as it so often does, on dumb luck. Though the army seems to have been little more than an undisciplined mob, it had proven effective, and might have managed its goal. But in a siege of another unnamed town, a nobleman named Terentiolus was killed when hit by a stone thrown from the walls. He died quickly, and this would have drastic consequences for the army. Terentiolus, besides having an amazing name, had once been the Count of Limoges, and seems to have been a crucial commander of the army. We can guess this because, as soon as he was dead, the army began to panic. They panicked so hard, in fact, that they literally abandoned all of their loot and equipment on the road, and began fleeing north. The Visigoths took this opportunity and attacked them several times during this route, 
killing many and taking some of what little they had left. The survivors of this route limped back into Frankish territory and arrived at Toulouse. But they were not safe here, because on their way south, they had burned and looted all of the countryside around Toulouse. The citizens of the area were obviously furious, and they took their revenge on the survivors by stealing whatever they had left and generally harassing them until they fled further north. The remnants of the army, now little more than a desperate, starving mob, plundered their way back north. Those who had survived managed to return home, but thousands had died in the aborted campaign. There was starvation throughout southern Gaul thanks to the burnt or stolen crops, and the economic and social damage to the region was devastating. All of the plunder, including that initially taken from Frankish lands, had been left to the Visigoths, and the towns that had been taken were to be quickly retaken by the Gothic warriors. All in all, not a great success. Now, in response to this failure, Guntram called a council of bishops and leading nobles. He made clear his opinion that the blame fell on the army's commanders for failing to keep their troops in line and letting them burn and pillage the churches. He makes it very clear that he believes that his ancestors used to build churches, not pillage them, and that is why the Frankish armies can no longer win. Gregory wholeheartedly agrees with this analysis, because of course he does. He also records the gathered leaders as agreeing with the king, also stating that the populace has been taken over by evil, and that is why they are uncontrollable. This is, of course, a classic analysis. A good old-fashioned moral panic is an easy solution to any problem, because it requires very little introspection from the elites who are in charge. Much easier to blame the populace for being evil, and blame God's wrath for their failures. But we are not so easily distracted or as willing as Gregory to swallow wholly moral answers to practical questions. First of all, we know that the idea that the Franks used to conquer because they respected church property is a fantasy. Clovis might have made some efforts to curtail the plunder of churches, but it was absolutely still commonplace during the Frankish conquests in and around Gaul in the first generations of Merovingian rule. Guntram's argument that they used to build churches instead of burning them down does not hold water. They've always done both. The argument about ill-discipline, though, is a little more plausible. Not because of the common people who were evil, obviously, but because of the nature of Frankish armies that had changed over the years. We've talked about this before. The hardened tribal armies of the early Merovingians had given way to an entirely different type of military force. Frankish armies in this period had a small core of professional household soldiers with a large mass of untrained levies around them. What the Septimanian campaigns really show is the strengths and flaws of this new system. 
Now, you might say that there don't seem to be any strengths, but that is not entirely true. The army had proven effective at taking towns, and especially at intimidating towns to surrender. These were well fortified, so this is not nothing. The army had also, for better or worse, proven effective at plundering the countryside. A horrifying part of war, yes, and one best reserved for the enemy's lands instead of your own, but still. Plundering lands was a massive part of pre-modern warfare, and served several strategic and economic purposes. But on to the bad stuff. This campaign had proven two things. The commanders had pretty limited control over their troops, and when those commanders died, all cohesion could be quickly lost. First, the limited control. Guntram's council even points this out, saying, quote, No man fears the king. No man has any respect for his duke or count. If it happens by chance that one of us disapproves of all this and tries to put things right, the people immediately revolt and an uprising begins. Everyone reviles this person in charge so savagely that he can scarcely expect to escape with his life unless he is prepared to swallow his words. End quote. They are, of course, blaming this on the populace's evil, but it still demonstrates an awareness that they had a total lack of control over their levies. And this is a key problem with any undisciplined army. If you had the majority of your force joining simply for the looting, with little to no training, keeping them in line and preventing them from doing that looting is basically impossible. During the late antique period, where professional armies were on the decline, even states like the Eastern Romans had trouble controlling their troops. The Frankish tribal armies of the years before had been a bit like this, but they had at least shared some experience and an idea of warfare. Peasant mobs were never going to be well disciplined. This is also why the cohesion was lost so quickly after the death of Terentiolus. In a more professionalized, or at least experienced, force, there would have been a clear chain of command. The army would lose its leader, but no, it's best to stick together and listen to the next person in line. But in this age where people join temporarily with no experience, they mostly follow the leader that they feel is the most charismatic and will give them the best chance at success. This places the leadership in the hands of sometimes even just one mortal man, and if he dies, or the army's confidence is shaken in some way, then the inertia of success that has been driving them forward can suddenly reverse. Then, with no discipline or knowledge of the danger of a route to keep them in line, each man will flee to preserve his own life and plunder. If the majority of your army is like this, boom, your army disintegrates. It is not that Frankish armies were entirely useless. They were just rickety, a little feeble. When things were going well, they would look great, but as soon as a single speed bump comes, they had the chance of disintegrating and losing everything. As Guntram and his council were talking, a messenger arrived from the south. They informed the council that Recarid, 
son of King Luvigild and brother of the deceased Hermenegild, had launched a successful counterattack. He had retaken several towns, laid waste to the area around Toulouse again, and even marched into Burgundy, taken a castle, and enslaved its inhabitants and looted its treasures before returning back to Septimania. Guntram appointed Ludigasil to take command and protect the border from further retribution, but the scorecard on this one is very clear. Visigoths 1, Franks a resounding 0. With that massive failure, we're going to end this episode. The story of Guntram's disastrous invasion of Septimania puts a clear wrap on the period of Frankish conquest. Kings will try to do some campaigns in the future, but none will really go anywhere important. It is not until the fall of the Merovingians and the rise of the Carolingians that the Frankish army will be reformed and once again become a dominant force in Europe. But that's a story for another time. Next episode, we're going to return to the plots of Fredegund and Brunhild as they continue their campaigns of revenge and centralization. See you then. <laughs>